following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. My name is Pastor Lester. I am an uh, assistant pastor here at ICC. Really good to see you all. And um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, if you haven't noticed, I am a, I'm a Filipino-American, and um, growing up as a Filipino-American, uh, what I remember uh, is uh, when you go to a Filipino family party, uh, the first thing you would probably see is everyone's shoes piled and scattered uh, near the front door, and uh, it'll be a pretty, it'd be a pretty full house uh, with uh, family, extended family, friends, and friends of friends, and and you call everyone that's older than you uh, Tito, which is uncle, and Tita, which is aunt. Okay. Uh, you can usually expect an eclectic collection of food, uh, and the variety can be kind of confusing. Uh, from the classics like pancit, uh, Filipino noodle dish, uh, adobo, uh, chicken marinated in soy sauce and vinegar, and uh, lechon, and pig's blood called diniguan. Then you also have... Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> and spaghetti with pieces of Vienna sausage in it. So uh, Sometimes a Bulls game uh, would be on, and you'd know every time they'd score because there'd be loud yells and shrieks from the titos and titas, and uh, a majority of the noise would come from one or two titas. Um, kids aren't exactly supervised that well. Uh, I saw my first horror movie when I was like five, one of these things. And my second, and my third. And, um, we'd be running around, playing games, rough housing, and, and we'd, uh, we'd be up really late having so much fun with friends and cousins. Um, and just when you think the night is over, someone busts out their karaoke mic, and uh, everyone starts picking their favorite songs and just start singing. They, they start singing the night away. At the same time, you have adults playing mahjong, um, a, tile, uh, a tile game, a uh, Chinese child, uh, tile game for hours, sometimes into the next morning. Uh, sometimes someone would yell out, program, 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 and adults and kids would put on an impromptu variety show, everything from dancing to instrument playing and singing, kind of like America's Got Talent, um, but without the judges. And, uh, but here's the thing, Filipino parties, okay, they, they show us what is important to us, okay, they, they, what we value as a people group which is uh, family, hospitality, uh, socialization, and entertainment. Uh, when we encounter different cultures, ethnic groups, even down to individual family households, uh, we find different array of traditions which highlight values and also a plethora of ways that these values are prioritized. Uh, time, money, power, health, education, appearance, spirituality, and so on, we find out quickly that, uh, we find quickly what they are, right? Especially when we encounter or experience them in real life interactions with one another, right? So whether it be visiting another country or someone's home, you know, we quickly pick up, we, we really pick up on, on the different values, um, either by learning about them or yeah, sometimes stepping on them, okay? Uh, but what you don't see very often what you don't see very often is uh, brokenness 
as a value. What we've been learning these past few weeks is that brokenness is a value in Jesus' kingdom. Brokenness is the state, posture, heart, attitude, a specific description of the kind of people who are responding to Jesus' invitation to enter his kingdom. Those who would, be, uh, who would more readily um, receive and be used for the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be blessed according to Jesus. In fact, this is how he starts off his Sermon on the Mount, describing who's in, right? called the Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew 5, 3 to 10, you know it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You see, the, the broken are not marginalized, looked down upon, or rejected. They are actually the blessed ones, according to Jesus. Pastor Peter and I have been going through a sub- slash mini-series within the Sermon of the Mount called Blessed Are the Broken. In this series, we've been highlighting characters in the Bible that actually reflect the Beatitudes. There are many broken characters that we find in the Bible, and we're looking to highlight just a few of them to show what happens when the kingdom of God crashes down on people, right? crashes down, and what the embodiment of the kingdom actually looks like. Two weeks ago, I covered the healing of the leper and how sometimes the kingdom actually calls us inwards to a journey through the layers of our sin and brokenness and what sometimes could be a frightening process of self-revelation and awareness, but we look, to, we look to and depend on Christ in the darkness of it all for true healing. Uh, Pastor Peter did a wonderful job covering Mary and how by faith the broken are transferred to blessedness and how the kingdom calls us outwards to be blessed in order to be a blessing to a world, and as a result, the advancement of God's kingdom. We will now look at Matthew 9, 18, verses 18 and 19, and then skip down to 23 to 24, as well as take glimpses at the parallel account in, found in Luke 8, 40 to 56, where a prominent man named Jairus loses his daughter to death, and, um, and what Jesus does about it. So, um, please uh, read with me now, uh, Matthew 9, 18 and 19, and then skipping down to 23 to 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus followed him with his disciples. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. Go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. Uh, please join me in prayer. Uh, Father, we, we humbly come before you and we ask you, Lord, may your words speak in ways that, that, that just don't change us for the moment, but change us for all of eternity. And so we ask for the grace of your word to come before us, speak to us personally. And in that, Lord, may we have a posture of having your will be done in us. 
we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So, um, a ruler uh, of a synagogue, a man of high status named Jairus, he, uh, he kneels before Jesus and implores him to help him with his grave situation, the death of his own daughter. Okay. In Matthew, he comes with a request that shows a desperate faith. This is in Matthew. He, he comes to him in a desperate faith in Jesus. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and, and she will live. In Luke, when Jairus approaches Jesus, his daughter was still alive, but dying. Okay. Moments later, someone from the sight of his daughter, uh, of his dying daughter, uh, comes up to Jairus and bears the horrific news. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Two different perspectives of the same account, but both involve the tragedy and desperation of a father losing his daughter to death. What makes this high-ranking privileged ruler counted as one of the broken? His shattered and devastated heart. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. There's nothing left to do. There's nothing anyone can do. Death has come. She's gone. You know, death, death brings with it the deepest parts of the pit of hopelessness and despair. It's so, it's so final. Right? It's so irreversible. It reminds us that we have so little control and power over anything. And that, and that's, and that it's all an illusion. Death screams at this illusion. You're, you're wrong. Now be reacquainted with your helplessness. You know, why, why do we weep in funerals even when we believe that they're, a, they're in a better place? Why do we do that? Right? Where do these tears come from? It's because, it's because the body I knew is now being laid in the ground and covered in dirt and I won't have the body around me, near me, any longer. I won't get to see their eyes look upon mine. I won't get to hear their voice. I will no longer feel their hugs. I won't be able to kiss them or even sit with them. And their absence is felt to our very core. And we groan. I feel a part of me missing. And it breaks our hearts that they're gone. The death of a loved one feels like you're reaching out for someone who has always been there, only to find that when we need them one more time, they are no longer there. You know, after a tragic loss, you probably became quickly aware of how ill-prepared you were to deal with the barrage and roller coaster of emotions we call grief. Why is this? Maybe one explanation could be that even in the formative years of our lives, an overwhelming emphasis is placed on learning how to acquire things in order to make our lives successful and happy. In early childhood, we try to acquire our parents' praise. Later, we try to attain toys at Christmas by being good. We try to earn high grades in school in order to gain approval. We try to look attractive to our peers so we would, we would obtain acceptance. This process of learning how to acquire objects and attention continues into our adult lives. Isn't this what makes uh, marketing campaigns? This is what they kind of focus on, right? Finding happiness and contentment through getting things. 
And while we have learned much about acquiring things, we have very little preparation on what to do when we lose them, especially when it comes to not, to not things, but a person, right? Someone we cherish, someone that we've lost. Loss is inevitable, even predictable at times, but in spite of these truths, we are at a loss as to how to respond to losses that are guaranteed to happen and are sure to cause deep pain and disruption. We are even told not to even talk about it. What's done is done, right? You have to move on. Don't burden others with your feelings. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus deals with this grief head on, doesn't he? Unlike us, he knows exactly what to do with it. From this prominent man's desire, uh, dire request, Jesus gets up and follows Jairus to his house, and they would encounter play, uh, flute players and a crowd already there. Back then, when someone dies, they would hire flute players and several professional mourners. And, and these mourners were required at every funeral. But at the funeral of a, of, a, of a rich and powerful family, there'd be many mourners. Jesus, upon entering this noisy crowd, as there would have been much shrieking and beating of chests, Jesus tells them, go away. Get out of here. He orders them to leave the house. This was to be a family affair. No hired mourners, just the true grievers. Their services were no longer needed anyway. Because they came to the wrong occasion. Because this wasn't a funeral. Jesus tells the crowd, you came to a nap session. The girl is not dead. She is sleeping. With that, the crowd laughed. You're, you're crazy. We're, we're here because many have confirmed that she's dead. There's no pulse, Jesus. They leave, and now, as told in the account found in Luke, Jesus, the disciples, Peter, John, and James, and Jairus and his wife were now left alone with the deceased girl. Now, we can only imagine this, but Jairus and his wife feeling the grip of despair, right? the overwhelming flood of grief and sadness, feeling helpless as death has permanently claimed their own, ached to their very core with their inability to change anything. But Jesus deals with this grief head-on, Unlike us, he knows exactly what to do with it. Matthew 9, 25. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Luke 8, 54 to 55. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Jesus takes death head on and says, My word is more powerful than you. Child, you arise. Death, you have no place here. Jesus takes death and all of its finality, irreversibility, all of its hopelessness, and by his power brings continuance, renewal, and hopefulness away from death's merciless nature, ripping the people we love away from us, to reunion. Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Jairus and his wife goes from mourning to comfort in the presence and power of Jesus. In your helplessness and grief, you may not know exactly what to do. But Jesus says, I do. And I'm going to remove the pain altogether by getting rid of the problem. By destroying the curse of death. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54-55, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? As Jesus noted, this child was only sleeping. Why? Because death does not exist in my kingdom. You know, when we read about Jesus' miracles, like raising a dead girl to life, these were never just mere pointless magic tricks used to impress or coerce others. Right? Jesus never said, yo, see that rock over there? Hadouken! Right? And then it just busts out in a million pieces, right? He never does that. Instead, he used his miraculous power to do what? Heal, feed, serve the desperate, the rejects of society, the healing of the blind, the casting out of demons. All of that to what is considered Jesus' greatest display of power, the raising of the dead. And, and, and when, when we take a closer look at it, it's not so much a work of the supernatural right, as it is a as it is a, more of a restoration to the natural. Jesus ushering in a state of what everything was supposed to be anyway. To make right what is wrong and to heal all that is broken. Miracles definitely show Jesus' power, for sure. But also what he's going to do with that power. What is to come. A complete overhaul of that, all that is sick, all that is sad and suffering, and the reality that death will be conquered. The instances of Jesus raising the dead, whether it's Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow of Nain, found in Luke 7, and his own good friend Lazarus in John 11, all of this was just a foretaste of what is to come. So why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because, well, for the ones that Jesus raised from death, they were just what? Resuscitated. Right? Meaning they were alive, but only to die again eventually because they were still in their mortal bodies. But Jesus, Jesus, he would be raised again. Not to be resuscitated, but what? Not resuscitated, but yes, amen, resurrected, right? Resurrected. Meaning they were, he, but um, he'll be raised again, not to be resuscitated, but resurrected. Never tasting death again in a renewed and immortal body so that, so that all those in his kingdom shall find the ultimate comfort of never having to taste death ever again. We can then interpret these miracles as tastes of the only true reality of the kingdom of God. And the reality is that grip, the grip of death has no hold over God's children. The power of death has no hold over God's people. In Jesus' presence, the curse of death had no place in Jairus' home. And the power of death has no place in the kingdom of God. When Jesus is king... What is dead doesn't have to stay dead. Do you believe this? A common interest that uh, me and my wife Grace have is, is rock climbing. And, and one notable figure in the climbing world is this guy right here, um, Alex Hunold. Right? He is a very accomplished free soloist, which means that he climbs rocks and mountains without a rope. 
As scary as, it, as scary as it sounds, he has done routes that would take climbers, that would take climbers days in a matter of hours. He is one who is definitely breaking the limits of what people thought is possible when it comes to climbing. Now, in the documentary Free Solo, his friends, who is also his camera crew, followed him in his journey to conquering what would probably be his greatest feat yet, free climbing El Capitan, right, in Yosemite National Park. It's a gigantic wall, right, of pure granite, raising above, like, 3,000 feet, right, above the level, above the valley floor. Um... This would be his greatest achievement to date. Actually, the climbing community's greatest achievement if he were to do it at that time. What was interesting was when doctors were doing tests and scans of his brain, they discovered that his amygdala was uh, the center of where our, um, brain process, um, where our brain processes fear and threatening stimuli, right? uh, such as climbing mountains without a rope. They found out that it needs, uh, his, uh, um, his amygdala actually needs way higher um, levels of stimulation to activate. Okay. This could explain his calmness when climbing these gigantic rock formations without a rope. Um, where most of us would freeze, get a quick adrenaline rush, maybe overgrip, sweat, panic, and then fall off. Right? Alex climbs these structures like he's taking a stroll in the park. Now, he started off loving climbing at a young age. He... But he was more of a loner, right? He, he was shy, rather emotionless, and he climbed alone a lot. Um, upon learning about his family life, it was a rather sad account, because he, he said this in the documentary, uh, no one has ever hugged in my family during my formative years. I, I actually had to teach myself how to hug when I was 23 or something. Everyone seemed to hug and thought, man, that's something I ought to get into. So I started practicing. No one in his family ever used the word love. His father uh, was removed emotionally, eventually divorced, and, and he died the next summer. Uh, listen, one wonders if his amazing climbing ability was due to a deadness. Right? Not only of his amygdala, but a deadness, not only from fear, but a deadness to feel any emotions at all, like he was supposed to. Not only do you need great ability or talent to do what Alex is doing, but you need nerves of steel. Unfortunately, Alex also had a heart of steel to go along with it. Things changed a bit as he met his girlfriend, Sonny, during a book tour, and funny enough, as his relationship with her continues to develop, he starts getting injured. Uh, he He starts getting injured climbing more and more. His superpowers seem to be waning, and that's not what you want when you're trying to achieve the greatest feat the climbing world has ever seen. You know, I'll leave the rest of the documentary for you to watch to see if he actually accomplishes this climb. But something to think about. Sonny, his first close relationship, although seemingly hurting his climbing skills, was breaking down his emotional walls. And all of a sudden, Alex had someone that was waking up a deadness that was there to experience someone's love, to fear for someone else and their well-being. It was reviving the humanness in Alex. Alex, as he became more injury-prone in climbing, was becoming more and more alive with Sonny by his side. What is dead doesn't have to stay dead. We all experience a form of death in our lives. If not the big D death, 
There are a lot of little deaths that we encounter in our lives. Your hopes die. Your innocence, your innocence dies. Your dreams die. Optimism dies. What is it for you? The pandemic has brought so much loss, the tragic loss of, of loved ones. Lives, unity, security, stability. What have you lost? Where is the source of your grief? The end of a job? A marriage that has lost all hope of getting better? Relationships where you, you would never think of forgiving them ever again? Where is, your, where is your fatalism at its highest? Where in you or around you do you think you can never change? Maybe you think you or your death-like circumstances will never move. It will never get better. It will always be like this. You see no way out. There is no off-ramp. You're just stuck, and it feels horrible. You feel so hopeless. You know, what's amazing about the resurrecting power of Christ is that not only is it something that we anticipate in the future, but it's something that we are to experience now. As Paul says in Romans 6.4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of our Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In this verse, it says nothing about Christ being raised from the dead so that we may be resurrected later after we die. No, it says we, might too, we, we too might walk now in the newness of life given to us today. In Jesus, whatever is dead doesn't have to stay dead. In Jesus, if he was able to conquer death, then nothing is impossible for it to find breath and life again. Amen? In God's kingdom, nothing gets stuck in its dead state. Things can change. Circumstances can change. You can change. Look, look, people don't get tripped up about wanting to change, right? There's enough witness and self-awareness of our own failures, fallenness, and fractures. There's enough desire there within us to change, to want to change. That's not the problem. The problem and frustration comes in what? It comes in the inability the inability to change. Negativity and cynicism can consume us because not that we didn't want to change, but, but after trying again and again, it just doesn't happen. Real change doesn't actually happen. You gave it your best effort. You gave it a go only to eventually encounter the same self you've always known. Sure, you can pick up good habits or stick with New, Re New Year's resolutions for what, I don't know, three months, tops. Yeah, sure, there's behavior modification, but your heart, your innermost desires and will, a heart modification? No, no, nothing has changed, and we think it can never happen. It's all a lie. We don't have the power to change. But when Jesus beat death, when Jesus beat death, Christ was proclaiming that there is a power to change readily available to us. If we can go from death to life, then there's nothing he can't change. Nothing. Here, I got some examples from nature. Okay, look, look, look. This, look, that's a, that's a flim, fleminglet. Did you know that? That's the name of a baby flamingo. Look at that. Look at that ugly duckling. Look what it becomes. Who knew, right? How about this, 
Right? This is a Atticus Atlas. Look, a weird-looking caterpillar-like starts off that way, and then all of a sudden, boom, turns into this beautiful butterfly. How, how about this? How about these little gummy bears? They're not little gummy bears. Right? They, they're, they're baby pandas. It's like an inch, about the size of an inch. And then what do they turn into? This mammoth-sized panda. Right? What about, the, what about this young duckling over here? Right? This young Paul McCartney haircut, candy cane, mock neck young man. What does he become? He becomes our lead pastor. Right? Stud. With his beautiful wife, Betty. Well, what about this one? What about this Asian-looking Urkel? Right? What does he become? He becomes this, he becomes our executive pastor. Elder. All-American softball player. Who knew? I'm so fired. <laughs> um, look at all those transformations. How much more can God change you? If he can conquer death, he can change you. Amen? There's nothing that I want to see changed that can't be changed by God. There's nothing that you want to see changed that can't be changed by God. That is what faith comes down to. Romans 8.11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Revelation 21.5, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. What would it look like? What would it look like to take hold and appropriate these promises to your soul and then to your hopeless and stuck-filled situation or to that dead or dying relationship? What would it mean to take resurrection truths and rebuke the lies you've been soaking in for far too long? What would it mean to kneel before Jesus like Jairus did and ask him to come to the house where the source of your grief and despair lay? Give Jesus an inch, a centimeter even, a mustard seed-sized faith, and he'll move mountains with it. Mary Garriott wrote a book called A Thousand Resurrections, accounting their ministry efforts in the inner city of Baltimore. Maryland, she talks about what has sustained her and her husband through 30 years, 30 years of inner city ministry. And she writes this, I didn't know that we would scrape by just above the poverty line for years, that I would live with people who heard voices, who spent their lives in juvenile hall and prison, that I would share a house with women who sold their bodies, snorted cocaine, and whose boyfriends choked and punched them. I did not know that when we began this ministry, that my children would be lead poisoned, that their friend who ate at our table like a godson would not go to college with them, but to prison, that a little boy with no daddy at home who baked cookies in my kitchen and hunted snakes with my son would one day lie on the street in a pool of blood. I did not know that several times a week for years my husband would make in the night agonizing, in the night agonizing on whether we were going to able to reach this neighborhood at all. I did not know when I was scraped raw that Jesus would heal me. 
that when I was broken, God would use my brokenness and that life could spring up in hope again, that it seemed like dying and evil had gained the upper hand. I did not know that I would witness a thousand resurrections, that the church members that struggled to pay their rent would adopt nieces and nephews to save them from drug-addicted parents, that a woman in church that saw a teenage mother roll a baby stroller in an empty house to, and, and to abandon it there, would then herself raise that baby as her own and give that child hope in life. I did not know that men who snorted cocaine and could get clean and love Jesus, that women sexually abused by their fathers could be healed and rescue other children and give them hope in life. I did not know that Muslims, atheists, Hindus would find Jesus and actually fill me with faith. I did not know that they would become my heroes and friends. I did not know that they would be braided into my heart and that I would know the resurrection through the, through the resurrection of Christ in them. I have seen a thousand resurrections. When you follow Jesus... When you encounter his kingdom, you will see life come from death. Some form of hopelessness to hopefulness. You will see change. This is the way of Christ. This is the Christ pattern we are all called to. From death to life, from death to life, from death to life. Matthew 9, 25 to 26 says this. He went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all, the all, through all that district. Through all that district. When you witness resurrection, when you, res when you witness life from death, when you do, like Maria Garriott, like the news of Jairus' daughter being, being raised, spread throughout the land, when resurrection from death happens, when the Christ pattern makes its full turn, you can't help but to talk about it. You've got to proclaim his work. You've got to be his witness to a watching world. I found out quite recently that the church in St. Louis where I was serving as a lead pastor permanently closed its doors. My wife and I left St. Louis convicted of a call by the Lord to come to Chicago back in 2017. Little did we know that there were other reasons for the call beyond doing church ministry in my hometown. A new pastor thankfully took over the ministry when we left, but a couple of years later, um, the pandemic proved to be too much for it to stay in existence. The news hit me harder than I thought it would. I took some time to grieve the death of the church. And as I was having that time, you know, a rush of memories uh, started coming my way, like my daughter Hannah's first ride on a tricycle, right? or playing basketball with church members on weekdays, or, or neighbors we would say hi to every morning. It was like a slideshow of my eight years of ministry down in St. Louis. It was a special time. It was a bittersweet time of remembering after the trip down memory lane, I noticed something about the mental reel that I was having. Grace, my wife, was hardly in them. If she was, she looked almost transparent, like faded, ghost-like. And that was the reality of our time in St. Louis and most of our time here in Chicago. Grace was put in the background too many times if not from ministry, then from my own needs. She would tell me that she would feel unseen, 
and not a priority to me. And I never realized how hurt and lonely that time was for her because of my lack of my consistent presence physically and emotionally. She carried a lot of the family's burdens on her shoulders, feeling many times that she was barely surviving. I had always noticed a transparent wall between us. I say transparent because there were times I knew what kind of husband that I should be. And I wanted to be, but I, I just couldn't get there. I had some of my friends say, you know, well, because of previous church experience, we were not trained to be good husbands. It was always about ministry first, uh, before family. Sacrifice all for the sake of ministry. Well, well to that I would say that that might have been one factor. But when I say wall, there were multiple layers and coatings that stood between me and my wife. My own emotional unavailability, unavailability, but also my inability. Almost like a numbness towards her. Maybe like, I don't know, Alex Honnold's steel heart. I don't know. There was this lack of empathy towards her. Many times I interpreted a number of our interactions as a threat. Turning her into an enemy rather than a teammate causing me to be so defensive. Other layers included my own sin and selfishness, which included a future orientation, a future orientation towards what success would look like in ministry. And there was a practice of self-protection and self-preservation of my own heart. That wall was really thick. Far too many times, our marriage was characterized in this this way, and as a result, she felt like a ghost, and she was. She felt like God had forgotten about her, that she no longer mattered, and it was reinforced by her husband's lack of acknowledgement. In the grieving of herself to me and the family, she expressed she was losing her voice and her identity, no longer recognizing who she really was anymore. If anyone was dying in her marriage, it was her. Our marriage, though not overtly blowing up into a million pieces, It was slowly decaying over the 10 years of marriage. It was until recently that the walls between us started coming down. God was bringing to life my sights and sensitivity towards her. I started to become more of a teammate, saw her less as an enemy and more like the loving wife that stood, and more more like her, the loving wife that stood by me all this time. Seeing her needs and meeting them started to become a priority. My empathy towards grace, my wife, she, it felt deeply. I was feeling it in deeper ways than I, that I, ever, I just never thought that was possible. Grace put up a pretty sign up in our bedroom last year, and it said, I love you more every day. And I'm finally able to feel what that sign means. And I can mean those words, I love you, more every day, deeper than I ever had before. As a result of the deeper healing, God's been working in my heart. I'm so thankful to God for his forgiveness and grace, thankful for this second chance. I praise God for the grace of personal and marriage professional counseling. I praise God for my loving, faithful, and long-suffering wife who never stopped cherishing me. Though our marriage is in, in, it's in its best place uh, it's ever been for, for most of the 10 years we've been together. It's still a work in progress, and there's a ways to go. 
I still am very sorry for all that she went through, and I devote myself in being part of her healing as well as working out my salvation as a partner that I was called to be. That's where my true success in the Lord rests, cherishing my wife and cherishing my children. From dying to the road to new life, God had bigger plans when moving us from St. Louis to Chicago. More than succeeding in ministry was a plan to revive a dead husband, a fading wife, and a dying marriage, and to teach and transform me as to what it means to be a broken but blessed husband and father. There's so much more to go in our journey. Please pray for our marriage and our family during this new season. And may his resurrection power have his way in us. I cannot, I cannot tell you when and where the evidence, signs, and miracles and wonders of the kingdom will happen. Not the supernatural, but restoration to the natural. I can only tell you that there is a Heavenly Father that in the midst of seemingly unchanging, hopeless situations, He can bring healing, change, and even resurrection. Put off blame, cynicism, and disappointment and see Him. See Him. Put your hope in Him. Know Him because if He isn't changing your circumstances, allow Him to change and resurrect you to a new life. Truly, truly. Brokenness in Christ is the site by which the kingdom of God surges forward. Let's pray.